This morning, we will continue our series of, of conversations with Jesus. We are listening in on some of the most famous stories in the New Testament, but trying to see with fresh eyes and hear with fresh ears what might we come to know about our Savior uh, as we eavesdrop on these chats. Our story today is another famous story. We'll be in John 4 on page 1065 in your pew bibles it's a famous story and it's a long story so settle in but it's a good one let's listen again to the word of the lord now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come 
when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes, look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you've ever picked up a Jane Austen novel, then you know that there will be a love story. Or, if you're the kind of person who watches the TV show The Bachelor, then you are in it for the romantic drama, no doubt. Now, whether you are someone who likes the kissing stuff, as my kids call it, or not, the marriage plot is one of the most basic kinds of stories in literature, books, music, TV. The marriage plot is a basic story, and that's true in the Bible as well. The setting for a wedding story in Scripture is often a well. Just a few months ago in July, I happened to preach on Genesis 24. I'm sure you all remember it. Let me just give you a recap. In this story, <laughs> Abraham's servant goes back to the old country to find a bride for the heir of the promise, Isaac. And the servant asks the Lord to give him a sign when he gets to the well. Lord, let the next woman who offers to water my camels be the girl. 
Jacob, the next generation, meets his wife Rachel at the well. And generations later, Moses meets his wife Sipporah at, you guessed it, the well. Now, granted, there were not a whole lot of other meeting places. There was no singles group at church, no hinge, no coffee meets bagel. The local watering hole was literally the watering hole. So when we hear that Jesus sat down by a well, Jacob's well, that is, this should pique our interest. It sounds like the start of a marriage plot. And it is, but it's a marriage story with a few twists. The first twist is in verse 9, and that's that this woman is a Samaritan. Samaritans were considered by the Jews to be religious half-breeds. They were sort of Jewish and sort of not. And while there was sometimes cooperation between the two groups, there was more often than not mistrust and even violence. This woman has the wrong racial and religious background to be Jesus' woman at the well. And she says so herself. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Why are you talking to me? When Jesus approaches her, she should have said something courteous like, I'd be happy to get you water, sir, and may I water your camels as well? But she doesn't. She gets her lines all wrong. And instead, she makes it awkward. How can you ask me for water? And in our second twist, Jesus flips the script. He offers her something to drink. This is a classic exchange in the Gospel of John, what follows. Jesus refers to something physical, but more than physical. Be born again, he says to Nicodemus. What? Eat my flesh and blood, he tells his followers in chapter 6. And here, receive living water. Now, living water could refer simply to running water as opposed to still or stagnant water. But you know Jesus. He means something more. And when the woman begins to show interest, Jesus somewhat abruptly, it seems, tells her to go and call her husband. But perhaps this comment is not as much of a non sequitur. It's not quite as random as it seems. Because you see, in other scripture texts, an encounter at the well always leads to a dinner invitation. In Genesis 24, Rebekah's father runs back to the well to invite Abraham's servant to bring his camels and his whole party to come stay the night. In Genesis 29, Rachel's father hurried to meet Jacob and brought him to his home. And in Exodus 2, the future father-in-law of Moses chides his daughters, Why did you leave the man? Invite him to have something to eat. And we know Jesus is hungry. So in one sense, Jesus' request fits with the traditional story. The man at the well makes a connection with the maiden's male guardian and tries to get a free meal, at least. We know, again, that Jesus is looking for something to eat. But in another way, Jesus' question sets us up for the third and final twist. The woman at the well is already taken. She has had five husbands, and she already has another man. What do we make of the woman's relationship 
history. It's a history that exceeds the number of marriage, marriages for any man or woman in the, in the surviving record. Well, third century theologian Tertullian labeled the woman a prostitute. Fourth century preacher John Chrysostom told his congregation that the woman committed a shameful sin. Reformer John Calvin concluded that she must have been an adulterer. And modern commentators portray her as, at best, emotionally needy, looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> I think Fuller Seminary professor and New Testament scholar Marion May Thompson can help us consider the woman's situation a little bit more clearly in its first century context. Thompson writes, the woman's five marriages would presumably have ended either in the death of a husband or a divorce. If pre previous husbands had died, then the woman would have been left alone and widowed. If previous marriages had ended in divorce, then five times she would have been cast off by her husband. On either score, the woman's repeated marriages would not have made her a more desirable candidate for marriage. That she is currently living outside of a legally contracted marriage indicates her immorality, but also her desperation. She needs the protection and support of a husband, but has settled for what she can get. Jesus calls attention to her problematic situation, but he does not condemn her. And Thompson concludes, but subsequently, commentators and preachers have hastened to fill the void. Jesus names the woman's present circumstances and long history. Jesus says what the woman does not say for herself, but not to condemn her. But then to what end? Why does he bring it up at all? Not just to expose her, but to expose himself, to reveal himself to her. Jesus' prophetic word draws the woman in. She puts to Jesus the most divisive theological question of the day. Where should we worship, your temple or mine? Jesus says, worship's no longer about temples. It's about spirit and truth. The Messiah will explain it, Jesus offers. And Jesus says... I am. In characteristic fashion, the disciples return confused. The woman runs off without her water jar, but with a message. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Not only does this man know true worship, this man knows her. The Savior of the world speaks the words that she leaves unsaid. Husbands. What she would rather forget, Jesus remembers. Her first marriage, her second marriage, her third marriage, and on and on. He knows the grief. He knows the rejection. He knows what she did. He knows what was done to her. He knows what she's settled for and what she's given up on and why. He knows her. 
As Augustine puts it in his own autobiography, Confessions, you were closer to me than I am to myself. God knows her even better than she knows herself. And the same thing is true for every one of us. The Savior of the world could tell you everything you ever did. The Lord knows you. And this can be a frightful thing, can it? I'll never forget the day that I was standing in this pulpit ready to lead confession and I looked out and saw a girl from my hometown 800 miles away. We had known each other since kindergarten and, well, she has known me at my best and my worst. Suddenly there was one sitting here in the sanctuary who could tell you about, well, all my boyfriends, who could tell you about my mean teasing and immaturity. And, of course, I would tell you, too, I'd be happy to volunteer that information, but she could say it in her own words. I would no longer be able to control the narrative. And on this very small scale, it was both wonderful and frightening to be known. The Lord knows you. You are known and not alone in the world. But that can be a frightening thing. For it means that you are accountable to a version of the story beyond your own. If you're alone in this world, then you get to make your decisions and tell the story of your life however you please. But if you are known, known by a God who indeed knows you better than yourself, then wisdom says, well, you should seek his knowledge of you to interpret the past, to shape the present, to assure the future. I think we are both desperate to be known and dismissive of the possibility that someone, anyone, especially God, could know us. And this shows up perhaps most clearly in the way we think about relationships and sex. We are told by the well-meaning world around us, that our longings, our sense of true self, are inviolable. They must be discovered by us and questioned by no one. This is intended to free us, but in fact, this freedom lays on you, on me, a heavy burden, a burden that is too great for anyone to bear. In effect, it cuts you off from the others who love you and would otherwise help you to know who you are. And at worst, it leaves you alone with the internet to figure out your true self. But what we see in this story is a God who doesn't leave you alone. We meet a God who knows you, a Savior who steps into the most tender areas of life alongside you. And he does so not to condemn, but to show you how to shoulder a load that is simply too great for you to bear. Throughout her history, the church has sometimes, in different ways, obscured this Jesus. We have replaced this Jesus with someone who is fearful and hard-hearted, who is more reflective of our anxieties than of the character of God. 
But what about the Jesus that we see here this morning? The one who meets us in his own weariness and thirst at the well. Will you be drawn in to seek his wisdom? Will you let yourself be known? There's a risk to be sure because his spirit and truth will transform you past, present, and future to something that is otherwise unimaginable. But you can always play it safe if you want to and persist in the illusion that you are, in fact, alone. The story concludes with another comic interlude with the disciples. Jesus is trying to tell them about spiritual hunger, and his friends think that maybe he's gotten fast food. When the woman returns with a crowd of her neighbors, she is, as it turns out, more than a woman at at a well. She's an evangelist, a model disciple for Jesus' closest friends and for us. The harvest is plenty among those who count themselves as outsiders, even enemies of the people of God. This story is about more than one man and one woman. It's about a people, nations, who have been led astray by false gods, who have given themselves to other lovers, but are embraced by Jesus Christ, the true bridegroom. This is not the last wedding plot in the scripture. As we heard already, Revelation envisions heaven as the wedding supper of the Lamb, and what we see in this story is what's reaffirmed in that book, that the church, the bride of Christ, is comprised of people from every nation. Salvation is from the Jews, but not just for the Jews. Jesus is, as the Samaritans say, the Savior of the world that God has so loved. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. In Jesus' name. Let's pray together. O Lord, you know us completely. You hem us in behind and before. You know when we sit and when we rise. You know every word on our tongue before we speak. You know what we have done and left undone. You know what has been done to us. Help us to seek your wisdom, Lord, about how to live. Help us to lean in, to hear your words, and to meet the Savior of the world and share it. We ask in the name of our one true Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.